Hey everybody, this is Natal Partansky, and I am back with another episode of Startup Essays. This is where we look at some essays from prolific writers in the startup community, uh, mostly focusing on Paul Graham, and go through it and kind of give it like a audiobook style for these essays, so you, the listener, can listen to it on your way home from work, at the gym, and then I or me and some of my friends will make some commentaries on what we think about the information that we just went over and actually how it affects us as I'm a founder of a startup called Sorting Robotics based out of Los Angeles and me and my friends got back to go through YC and we are now kind of on that journey for product market fit. So by going through these essays, learn a little bit for us learn a little bit for you and uh, all these essays we actually don't read beforehand Um, me and some of my friends go through and make sure that they're just the right size and length but uh, I want to learn just as much as you do at the same time as you do so we can kind of just like really feel out the stream of consciousness Um, if you have any recommendations for essays that you want me to go over critique uh, give my opinion on Hit me a line at startupessays at gmail.com. Uh, that's startupessays at gmail.com. I'll respond to you, and if you want, I can discuss maybe your questions, concerns, and do it on the air, on the podcast. So this week, we're going to be talking about Return of the Mac. It is a Paul Graham essay from March 2005. You can find it on paulgram.com forward slash Mac. And I I don't know. I just looked at the title and it looks like he probably is talking about MacBook Pros back in 2005, which, Jesus. <clears throat> I don't, the only thing I remember about MacBooks back in 2005 were shit. They weren't even MacBooks. They just had iMacs, right? The big single piece monitor things. So... Yeah, why don't we get right into it and uh, try to keep this to about 30 minutes. That way it doesn't go too long. And here we go. Return of the Mac, March 2005. All the best hackers I know are gradually switching to Macs. My friend Robert said his whole research group at MIT recently bought themselves PowerBooks. These guys are not the graphic designers and grandmas who were buying Macs at Apple's low point in the mid-1990s. They're about as hardcore OS hackers as you can get. The reason, of course, is OS X. PowerBooks are beautifully designed and run free BSD. What more do you need to know? I got a PowerBook at the end of last year when my IBM ThinkPad's hard disk died soon after. It became my only laptop. And when my friend Trevor showed up at my house recently, he was carrying a PowerBook identical to mine. For most of us, it's not a switch to Apple, but a return. Hard as this was to believe in the mid-1990s, the Mac was in its time the canonical hackles computer. In the fall of 1983, the professor in one of my college CS classes got up and announced, like a prophet, that there would soon be a computer with half a MIPS 
of processing power that it would fit under an airline seat and cost so little that we could save enough to buy one from a summer job. The whole room gasped, and when the Mac appeared, it was even better than we hoped. It was small and powerful and cheap as promised, but it was also something we'd never considered a computer could be. Fabulously well-designed. I had to have one, and I wasn't alone. In the mid to late 1980s, all the hackers I knew were either writing software for the Mac or wanted to. Every futon, sofa, in Cambridge seemed to have the same fat white book laying open on it. If you turned it over, it said, Inside the Macintosh. Then came Linux and FreeBSD and hackers who follow the most powerful OS wherever it leads, found themselves switching to Intel boxes. If you care about design, you could buy a ThinkPad, which was at least not actively repellent if you could get the Intel and Microsoft stickers off the front. With OSX, the hackers are back. And when I walked into the Apple store in Cambridge, it was like coming home. Much has changed, but there was still that Apple coolness in the air, that feeling that the show was being run by someone who really cared instead of random corporate deal makers. So what? The business world may say, who cares if hackers like Apple again? How big is the hacker market after all? Quite small, but important out of proportion to its size. When it comes to computers, what hackers are doing now, everyone will be doing in 10 years. Almost all technology, from Unix to bitmap displays to the web, became first popular within the CS departments and research labs, and gradually sped to the rest of the world. I remember telling my father back in 1986 that there was a new kind of computer called a Sun that was a serious Unix machine, but so small and cheap that you could have one of your own to sit in front of, instead of sitting in front of the VT100 connected to a single central VAX. Maybe, I suggested... He should buy some stock in this company. I think he really wishes he'd listened. In 1994, my friend Koling wanted to talk to his girlfriend in Taiwan. To save on long-distance bills, he wrote some software that would convert sound data into packets that could be sent over the internet. We weren't sure at the time whether this was a proper use of the internet, which was still then a quasi-government entity. What he was doing is now called VOIP and it is a huge, rapidly growing business. If you want to know what ordinary people will be doing with computers in 10 years, just walk around the CS department at a good university. Whatever they're doing, you'll be doing. In a matter of platforms, this tendency is even more pronounced because novel software originates with great hackers, and they tend to write it first for whatever computer they personally use. And software sells hardware. Many, if not most, of the initial sales of Apple II came from people who bought one to run VisiCalc. Why did Bricklin and Frankston write VisiCalc for the Apple II? Because they personally liked it. They could have chosen any machine to make into a star. If you want to attract hackers to write software that will sell your hardware, you have to make it something they themselves use. It's not enough to make it, quote, open. It has to be open and good. And open and good is what Macs are again, finally. The intervening years have created a situation that is, as far as I know, without precedent. Apple is popular at the low end and the high end, but not the middle. My 70-year-old mother has a Mac laptop. My friends with PhDs in computer science have Mac laptops. Yet, Apple's overall market share is still small. Though unprecedented, I predict the situation is also temporary. 
So, Dad, there's this company called Apple. They make a new kind of computer that is as well designed as a Bing and Olufsen stereo system. And underneath is the best Unix machine you can buy. Yes, the price-to-earnings ratio is kind of high, but I think a lot of people are going to want these. Notes. 1. These horrible stickers are much like the intrusive as popular on pre-Google search engines. They say to the customer if you, <laughs> that you are unimportant. We care about Intel and Microsoft, not you. And then Y Combinator is, we hope, visited mostly by hackers. The proportions of OSSs are 66% Windows, 18% Macintosh, 11% Linux, 1% FreeBSD. The Mac number is a big change from what it would have been five years ago. Hmm. All right. Well, that was an interesting kind of short article, I guess. So <laughs> I like at the very end, he uh, talks about saying that Mac is going to be a great company. <laughs> and, man, you know, so do you think he actually, because at this point he was rich, right? Like he, uh, Paul Graham had a fuck ton of money. Um, uh, this was what the second year of Y Combinator is 2005. Um, yeah, that's cool. I bet you, he bought a fuck ton of Apple and, and then like as Y Combinator did really well, like he probably did a damn good job. Um, so that's pretty funny. It's really nice seeing his really old material because a lot of this stuff is like so predictive. Like, I guess it's kind of indicative of what type of person he is and how he's able to understand technology because in the last week's podcast he talked a little bit about apple he talked a little bit about design and you can see yep 15 10 years later 10 15 years later boom he what he said was correct but then again i want to see as we go through more and more of these essays how many predictions he makes that are wrong because so far he's doing a pretty damn good job um yeah so i i'd like to really kind of start doing more measurements on what he's talking about um but yeah this is pretty funny uh i actually didn't know why so many coders use apple and how like i always feel like apple is not very hackable but i get like the only reason why i thought it was like oh you know it runs unix and unix is linux basically and uh, that's what a lot of coders use to code on. And so, and I also notice like when you do Linux, like, and when you are running like Python and stuff like that off of Linux, it's much easier to let that flow on a Apple computer as opposed to getting like a windows computer and then flashing it with Linux. Uh, cause sometimes the hardware doesn't like play well, uh, with Linux and there's like a lot of drivers that are missing, but because Apple is basically Unix, that, that's how it works. I just find it really weird, especially now, uh, that Apple is so close, such a walled garden, right? Like, using uh, iPhone is like, Jesus Christ, it's like using a child's toy. It's so straightforward. There's no modification. There's no back-end kind of mediocre interface to, like, how it's working. You're either deep in the developer mode and then even then they don't like you fucking with the hardware like they don't give you access to the data ports you have to do everything through at least before you have to do everything through the head jack like send signals through the head jack because they wouldn't let you go through the usb and now i don't know what it's like for the fire port 
uh, or for the lightning port, but it's probably something similar. And I just so surprised. And so like a lot of the developers I know, they like have Android because they can, you know, very easily without delving into deep developer mode, get access to the root access of the phone, get access to the files of the phone, start messing with things at like a high level without going so deep into the back end of the system. And then even like uh, hardware manufacturers really like using Android phones because the hardware is so open. Um, so, I mean, Android's like much more hackable. And that probably explains why the Android app market got big a lot faster than the iPhone market. But, I mean, I don't know. There's like a lot of kind of dynamics to that. Like, there are more Androids than there are iPhones, and but then Android is on many platforms. iPhone's on one platform. Our OS X Mobile is on uh, multiple platforms. And, yeah, I don't know. It It's really weird. I think that's like a whole nother podcast discussion. But this is mostly just talking about how Apple is a great company. And Apple is a great company. And what they make is pretty amazing as well. So, hmm. What is he saying here? I think he mentioned one thing, which, oh, yeah, like, it has to be open and good. Uh, I think this plays in a lot of different sectors. So, if you look at uh, gaming systems as well, they always make it so open because the only way xbox or any of these huge game systems are able to sell is like if their software is so good if their games are so good people will buy the hardware which is why when you saw the ps3 when it first came out i think every time sony shipped the ps3 they lost a hundred dollars and they didn't care because they were like we're just gonna sell so many of these and then with these flagship games we'll be making more money on the software so Every time something was printed on their platform, they, you know, paid out the developer, then they made their money back. Because, like, when the PS3 came out, it was insane. Like, I remember they were saying it was, like, better than most computers and, like, half the price. And people were running, like, Blu-ray. Like, the best Blu-ray player you could get at the time was a PS3. So, it was, like, way, way, way overkill for what needed to be for video games or like at the time, but didn't matter. And they were going to lose money, but they were going to make it in and ROI out in the next, you know, five to 10 years or whatever that life cycle was for the PS three. So, um, he's right. Right. One of those statements he makes software sells hardware. I think I agree with that. It would be hard to find someone who doesn't agree with that. Uh, like, cause that's even true now when you look at drones the usability of the drone is really what's defined by the software and the usability of the drone is what drives the sales because I mean the hardware for all the drones is like super, very similar, right? Maybe the gyros are a little bit different, but like the software is what sells the drones. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I myself don't have a Apple product um oh except uh airpods i fucking love airpods those are by far the best bluetooth headphones i've used um or bluetooth earbuds specifically um 
Like they just connect super quickly. I feel like every time I wear them, they're uh, super like like exceptionally clear. Like people will say that I sound better on the AirPods than I sound on just like my native phone, which I think is also pretty ridiculous. But they're great. They these are great fucking AirPods. Uh, earpods. And when I use like normal earphones, I just use like Sennheisers uh, because they're like kind of noise canceling. They have all these other options to them. In terms of like in-ear Bluetooth, I so far I've tried a few, like three or four, and the best by far are the AirPods. Uh, when I was at JPL, uh, I had an iPhone because I figured, hey, I should just try, you know, having the other side of the coin and seeing how that felt. And like, you know, it wasn't great. <laughs> it, I, I mean. I found myself being limited, like, at any time I wanted to do anything with the phone. I just would have to do it with my personal phone. If I wanted to make modifications to the files, if I wanted to share files, I had to use iCloud or some other fucking bullshit. Um, Just moving the file structure was basically impossible. Making changes to the way the phone behaves was basically impossible. There's so many limitations. Some of the apps didn't work the same. They weren't as flexible on my iPhone as they were on my Android. And that was probably due to some limitation that Apple wouldn't let people do. Because I've hear a lot of times because of the walled garden that is the uh, App Store. They are super strict on what developers can do. And on the Play Store, they don't give a fuck. Which is why there's like a lot of spam and like... Uh, place where they steal your shit, but either way, um, yeah, I, so I used that, and I actually did, when I first went to college, I did have a, uh, MacBook Pro, and I thought that was really great, uh, however, I very quickly moved away from it, and the reason why I moved away from it was, it wasn't super great for games, like, I think, Steam didn't come out for... I don't think Steam was out for MacBook, but I could play StarCraft. Um, and so that was kind of a bummer. And, I mean, obviously Steam's on everything now, but uh, also, yeah, I like, even now, I'm not even sure. Like, I don't even think they make SolidWorks for Mac. I mean, I just remember they didn't make it a few years ago. Let's see. They didn't make it a few years ago, and I'm not sure if they make it now. Like SolidWorks, Mac. Do they? I I don't know. They might have to run as parallel. No, no, I don't think so. Can is there a Mac version? Yeah, no, no Mac versions for SolidWorks. Yeah, so that's why. Like, and then you could do shit where like you could run parallels, but running parallels on fucking SolidWorks is like a nightmare waiting to happen so yeah like in in the engineering world like ansys um a lot like nashtran a lot of this simulation software and cad modeling software just like it's just not made for uh for macbook or os x so uh yeah that's why that's why i basically moved away Uh, many people don't know that that a lot of engineering software just isn't written for MacBook Pro or OS X or any of these um, Apple products. And, like, you surprising, right? It's 2019 and they still don't do it, which I think is a big reason why companies like Onshape, which is a 
virtual like a in the cloud CAD modeling software. That is probably why they can have um, any any entrance into the marketplace. Like I know I didn't buy Onshape because I just didn't want to like learn more shit. Uh, I didn't want to learn a whole other software or make my engineers learn another software because it's just not very common. But that's a great thing about being in the cloud, right? Like it's hardware agnostic. So, yeah, in terms of the difference between Macs and windows pc like i'm not one of those weird people i mean i am kind of weird people. like i talk shit on like apple products all the time uh mostly just because of the limitations they impose on you but i'm also not a like a computer scientist however i do know a lot of computer scientists that don't uh have macbook pros just because they're like too practical for a macbook pro uh in just in terms of like roi and cost but I do know a fuck ton of them that do because of it running Unix in the background. So, yeah, I wonder if his dad bought Apple stock. And I'm a certain that Paul Graham bought Apple stock. And if he bought it back in 20 or 2004, then, yeah, he, what, 10x'd his money, right? So, fuck. Yeah, that's pretty great. Um, yeah, let's just quickly see. Let's see. I mean, because Paul Graham is, you know, many, worth many. I mean, I don't know if Paul Graham's a billionaire or not. Maybe on paper because of all the uh, shit. I mean, the Y Combinator portfolio is worth $100 billion. Do I think that Paul Graham owns 1% of Y Combinator's portfolio companies? Hmm. Possibly. Probably not. But he's probably owning like quite almost something like that. So, yeah, is he worth a billion? Probably not. But is he worth many, many hundreds of millions? Yeah, yeah, I'd probably say so. And then not on top of that, let's look at uh, Apple stock. Because um, I have a feeling he's worth a fuck ton. Uh, or he's probably... Okay, oh my god, oh my god, yeah. So in March of 2005, Apple stock was $5. And I'm pretty sure it's split a few times. Um, and now it's worth $261.78, which as I'm looking at right now is an all-time high market cap, $1.1 trillion. That is a fucking, that is a fucking expensive ass stock. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, but, like, when do they have a split? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. Is there a way? I know Yahoo Finance will definitely tell me this. Um, so, Paul Graham, if you're listening right now, I'm, I'm definitely trying to find out how much you're worth. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, if you could drop me a line, you just send me a DM on, a, like, email or something like that. Uh, Let's see. I I'm certain Let, how much do you think Paul Graham actually invested in um shit, I don't know. Okay, let's assume he I mean he was worth a few million. He was pouring in money into YC and he was very comfortable with losing that money. So let's say he put in like 100k or maybe nah, maybe not 100k. Like 
10k sounds so low let's say he put in like 50 eh, let's say he put in like 100k because he put in 100k to every yc batch and he assumed he was going to throw that money away so if he was investing in y in uh in apple you could assume that you know he actually he actually thought it was going to go up so let's see uh indicators indicators okay yeah so there was a split oh my god there was a split one to two and another split one to two what does that mean is it is that like a reverse split no one yeah so one turns into two okay so oh my god so it increased not a hundred x from when he bought it but 50x and then it's split twice so 50 to 100 to 200 so he 200x his money let's assume he invested 100k uh holy fucking shit no way wait is that right oh my god no what okay hold on put out jesus so if he invested 100k then his Apple investments were 20 million. Okay, dude, you know what? Paul Graham might be a billionaire. Like, if just his Apple stock turned into 20 fucking million dollars? Is that right? I mean, Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm assuming the splits are 1 to 2. So it goes from 1 to 2. Oh, my God. Wow, I think this this whole podcast just turned into being impressed with Paul Graham's investing abilities. <laughs> oh my fucking god, Jesus Christ! Yeah, because he this is after he exited, so he was worth a fuck ton of money. So he must have done at least a hundred k. Holy shit! Good job, Paul Graham. You're a smart guy. Fuck. All right. I mean, on that note, guys, <laughs> I think we're gonna call this one quits. Um, I will uh, talk to you next next week as we go over yet another uh, article from Paul Graham. If you have any requested articles that you want our opinion on here at Startup Essays, let me know uh, or send me a line at startupessays at gmail.com. My name is Natal Partansky, the founder of the YC-backed sorting robotics company. I'm here every week and... We're done for today. Talk to you guys soon. See ya.